you would, take your Bibles, and we'll be in Psalm 86 tonight, Psalm 86. You'll notice it begins with the superscription there, stating that it is a prayer of David. You don't have to turn there, but if you'll remember... In Psalm 72, uh, verse 20, we read, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And that was in book two of the Psalter. The Psalter has five books. You get to book three, there's only uh, one Psalm of David. Um, Many believe that it's Psalm 72. It's charting to the end of David's life. And then you you see this one... In uh, book three, you'll see a couple in book four and a few in book five. And so, if that is correct, that the first book is charting through David's life, those first two books, then it means that these are strategically placed in the Psalter where they are for a specific reason if the Psalter was following along with David's life. And so, in other words, as we look at this, we have to look at it within the context of the entire Psalter and the way it has been uh, moving up until this point. And what we see here is it's titled as a prayer of David. And so anytime we come across a prayer, our ears should become attentive to the nature of the prayer for our own not only edification, but then also for our instruction in how we should address God. And so let us hear Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me, and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant, 
and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is God's word. And may he bless the reading of it. You'll notice in the text itself, as you heard it read, it divides nicely into three sections. There's a section of petition. There is a section of worship followed with a section, once again, of petition. And you'll note these sections divide nicely based upon the imperatives that arise within the text itself. An imperative is a command, and you'll notice the imperatives in the first seven verses rattle off in a staccato-like fashion where David is stating things that he wants from God in the, the, the imperative. And then you look at verses 8 through 13, and the mood changes to that of worship. And while we will find some imperatives in there, they come of a different nature. And then once again, in verses 14 through 17, again, you have a, a string of imperatives. And so that's telling us that that is petition. So you see petition, you stay statements of worship of the very nature of God, and then it concludes again with petition to God. And so this first set of petitions in verses 1 through 7, I want you to notice the connection between the plea, the, the petition itself, and then it's connected with a reason for the plea, a reason for the petition. And you'll notice this in the text with the word for. For instance, he says, incline your ear to me, answer me for. And so that is an explanation, that's an explanatory conjunction that is joining these thoughts, answer me because of this. And so that's how we want to see this section there and take note of those imperatives with those conjunctions. And that marks off that first section. Also, notice verse 1 begins with answer me. Verse 7 ends with for you answer me. And creating an inclusio there of the text itself. And so that first imperative is incline your ear to me, which is poetic language for stretch out towards me. And so you can vividly see the picture there. And that is just listen. Will you hear my prayer? Answer me. Same thing. Hear me and answer this prayer. Now, if we, if we think that that's bold before God and an act of presumption on the part of the psalmist, we have to look at what it's connected to with that conjunction. It states his need. For I am poor and needy. In other words, David, on the one hand, says, God, listen to me. God, answer me. As he's crying out to God, as the text later says, he is persistently crying out to God. Answer me. Hear me. Stretch your ear towards me. Why? Because I'm poor and needy. And that poor is the idea of being without property, literally, but it's to be without. Needy is to be in want. And so the cause of this prayer, you, you see it's really stated in verse 14, is because of oppression from an enemy. And David is surrounded 
much like he is and many times either metaphorically or literally. But what his statement is, is to say that he is poor and needy, is that he lacks any personal resources for help. There's nothing that he brings to the to table in this. So when he gives this imperative mood, it's not that he's making demands of God. He is simply stating before God, I am in desperate need of you. I am fully dependent upon you. I lack any personal resources to get out of the situation. And that poor and needy is a common phrase that you will see throughout the Psalter that they're together, which demonstrates something of the prayers we see, particularly of David, is that David's prayers are humble. He comes to the Lord in humility. He comes into to the Lord with a recognition of his own weakness, his own powerlessness. And so this is simply an acknowledgement before God. I am weak and I need your help. So that's how we have to balance out those imperatives that we so often see that make us uncomfortable to command something of God, but it's balanced out with the humility and, and his desperation and need for God and the acknowledgement of it. So you could say it, the, the imperative is, is an imperative of humility before God. And he goes on with the next imperative, preserve my life. That is for God to keep watch over him. That is for God to stand guard over him in the midst of his struggles that he is facing. And he gives the conjunction. Know what it is? For I am godly. One commentator says this is the Lord's loving kind one is what this literally means. And so as we think of it as if David's boasting of his godliness, it's not so much that he's boasting of his godliness, but stating a fact of his position with God. That's the same position that you can claim if you were in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I come to you and I stand in the name of your perfect righteous son that has imputed his righteousness to me and has taken away my sins so that I stand before you holy. And that you love me. I am godly in your sight because of your son. That's in essence what, what David is stating. So we shouldn't think of it as boasting, but just simply stating the fact of a Christian. If you're in Christ, you have a new status with God. And it is that you are a saint. Notice also the bit of humility in this, if we thought he was being boastful to say, for I am godly, because if we admitted it, those would be hard words for us to go and say to someone. But it might be easier for us to say, I'm declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness. So when you see that, for I am godly, think of it like that. Because he follows it up with, save your servant. And what does that mean? It's an acknowledgement that he is God's slave. He is a servant of God. And so he acknowledges the special relationship between God and his people. 
He's, he's appealing to the dependent nature of that relationship. And for him to say save, it means that David can no, take no means of his own to save himself. Now he gives us in this Savior servant who trusts in you. you. You could think of that's missing the four, that conjunction four. It's not there. But he's giving us a reason as if it was there. Why? Who trust in you, you are my God. That's the reason. That's the reason for the petition. That's the reason for the crying out to God. Is because I am your servant, you are my God. Trust. It is to lay one's confidence in another. Calvin says trust is the mother of all religion. It is to fully be confident in another person. And so why is that the mother of all religion? It's because we either trust ourselves or we trust in God. Those are our options. We can trust in our own righteousness or we can trust in the righteousness of Christ. But when we begin to trust not fully in the righteousness of Christ, we have automatically discounted the righteousness of Christ and begin to take matters into our own hands. And so when he says to God that he trusts in him, we have to know that this trust is actually to distrust yourself. So as we think about what it means to fully trust in Christ, to trust in God and his sovereign plan, you have to begin with a distrust of yourself, that you cannot trust yourself to save yourself. Because you know your heart, you know your own weakness. And so he goes on to say, be gracious to me, O Lord. Again, this is an imperative. Be gracious to me, O Lord. That is, following this same theme, is I bring no merit to this situation, but pray entirely trusting in your mercy to me. So when he asks for God's grace, he is automatically confessing, I have nothing that I bring to this that could earn a response from you. I want you to notice the nature of his prayer with the conjunction again, the word for. For to you do I cry all the day. What is that state of the nature of David's prayer? It means he's, we say very simply, he's persistent in prayer. You think of the widow before the magistrate, and how Christ uses that as an illustration to be persistent in our own prayers. But what we have to see is this persistence of prayer. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. We, we have to see that connected to that clause in verse 2, who trusts in you. The nature of trust manifests itself in a persistence of prayer. And so we have to see those two connections. That idea of persistence and trust connected together, that the persistence is actually a fruit of trust in God. It's a fruit of our confidence in God. In patience with God, 
leads to ceasing our cries to God and taking matters into our own hands, doesn't it? And so what, what does trust look like to God when answered prayers are not coming like we would want them to come? Trust comes about through that persistence of trusting in God. And persistence in prayer is such a common theme. But I think we would all admit persistence in prayer is much like memorizing Scripture. We're not good at it. Our, our persistence is not consistent. And that is a daily struggle for all of us that we must fight. And we have to recognize when we're not persistent in prayer, when we're not consistent in prayer, it's because we're automatically beginning to rest in ourselves. And what do we say about trust? Trust in God means I have to begin with the distrust of myself. I have to rest in Him. It gives us another imperative in verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant. That, that gladden that soul is such an interesting, that word gladden is to make happy or joyful. And, and what a relevant prayer. And just to kind of get an idea of, of how it's, it's used in, in Deuteronomy 12.7, it says, And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. In other words, when, when the Lord has given you a place of worship, and the Lord has blessed you according to the covenantal promises that He has given you when you enter into the land, you will rejoice because of how God has blessed you. That's that idea of rejoicing there, is that, that really you're experiencing many blessings from God. And for the Israelite, that would have been um, literal blessings that they received in the land, of fruitfulness from God. Their enemies would run, there would be fruitfulness of the womb, and all of those things. And that's the context of Deuteronomy 12.7, where we see that same word. So when it says gladden the soul, we want to think of it in this sense. He's asking God, through this imperative, to make my soul rejoice, make my soul happy. And in other words, give me that inner happiness that I have, that I want, that I desire. He's asking for this in his prayer. I don't think that that's an illegitimate thing for us to pray for. Especially when you're finding that you're going through struggles. And so often we can become despondent. Some people will deal with, with depression. You think of Charles Spurgeon who was often so many times depressed. I think this, what a prayer this would have meant for his soul. And if you ever deal with that yourself, what a, what a prayer. Gladden the soul of your, your servant. Bring rejoicing to my heart, O Lord. Now he gives the reason. For, O Lord, do I lift up my soul? I lift up my soul. And he doesn't stop there. He says, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Bring rejoicing to my heart because I, I lift up my soul to you. 
I take it to you. But then he goes, for, for this is who you are, God. You're good. You bring steadfast love and you bring forgiveness. And another way of looking at that forgiveness is that word gentle. You've been gentle with me, Lord. So bring this gladness to my soul. The point, according to Calvin, the point upon which David now insists is that God is bountiful and inclined to compassion and that his mercy is so great as to render it impossible for him to reject any who implores his aid. Notice what Calvin says there. God is so gracious. God is so compassionate to his people. Calvin says it's impossible for him to reject anyone who implores his aid. Now, if you begin to doubt those bold words of Calvin in his commentary on this passage, let me just read you the words of Jesus. Jesus said, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says, You come to me and drink, and not only will you drink, but within you there will be a bubbling fountain. I think Calvin's absolutely right. You think about how Christ says, uh, all who will come to him, he will never cast out. Take that to heart. That if you're in Christ, our Heavenly Father smiles upon you. And he will never cast you out. All who come to him, he receives gladly. What a wonderful truth. There's no other experience in life like that. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful when you, when you have a family and you come home and everyone's happy to see you and welcomes you home. It's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? Not always like that, right? It's not always perfectly like that. You don't always go into uh, the church and everyone goes, oh, I'm so glad to see you. You don't always go into uh, work and everyone's rejoicing. Whew, so glad you're here. Well, that's just not our experience because we live in a sin-fallen world. But notice what we see about our God. That in Christ we are welcome perfectly always. And that he receives us. That is the greatest promise we could possibly have. So when we think about these imperatives and the, the boldness that those imperatives seem, just remember that we have been reconciled to our Father in His Son. And He treats us as He treats His Son. He goes on with the next imperative, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. That is, again, to say, to listen. And he says, listen to my plea for grace. What is that word? That plea for grace is that it's the same idea of crying, Lord, give me your grace. That is, I don't deserve this. There's nothing I bring to it. Now he says, 
In the day of my trouble, I call upon you. Here's the conjunction for you, answer me. Many commentators see this as a future tense. Is that he's stating this is what will happen. Again, it brings us back to that theme that God is gracious to those that call upon him. And you mark that many times in the Psalter where the psalmist is so confident, God, you will deliver me. God, you will do this. Why? Because he's our heavenly father. And then after this string of imperatives that we see in the first seven verses, it then moves into statements about God. And David states in worship, and so verses 8 through 13 is, is his worship, but we will still see that there are two imperatives in the text that are helpful for our understanding of what he states about God. In verse 8, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. And so he's stating the uniqueness of God. There is none like you. There is none other but you. That God is infinitely exalted above us, and there's nothing in our ability to comprehend uh, anything like God by which we could compare him. There is no creaturely comparison. Like as we saw this morning in the Hebrews text that Moses saw the invisible God. There was no sense of God that was perceptible by our senses. Because anything that we could sense in creation would infinitely fall short of an infinitely exalted God. And so it's speaking of the uniqueness of God. And he doesn't stop with just the uniqueness of the nature of God. There is none like you among the gods. And, and you can picture David living in a pagan society that worships all of these different gods that were in the land. You can look at our society and see all of the false gods that parade themselves in Hollywood, and we can say, there is no gods like you, O oh God. They are deaf, dumb, and mute. And he states this by going on to say, nor are there any works like yours. Your works are above all things. There's nothing in comparison. False gods are mute and create nothing. That's the whole point. He goes on to say, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. There's so much packed into that verse right there. Notice what it says, all the nations you have made. In other words, that God is the creator of all nations. He designed them. He placed them where they are. Why do you reside where you reside? And why were you born where you were born? Why is it that you have the ethnicity that you have? It's because that's according to God's providence. All the nations are aligned and placed because God has done that. God is the God of all. He is creator. But there's also something else here, is you also see the mystery of the church stated by David. 
before Paul explains it in Ephesians. What does he say? All the nations you have made, they'll do something. They shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. It's amazing, in, in, in you read the book of Acts, the, the stumbling block that the Gentiles were to the Jews, the, even the Christian ones that were going out on mission. It's as if they missed this. That all nations were to come to God. This is the mystery of the church, that Jew and Gentile alike. And so it's an anticipation of the Messiah but it's not only an anticipation of the Messiah, it's an anticipation of the mission of the church that is sent by the Messiah. Don't let that verse pass you by. They shall glorify your name. That is, all nations shall come pouring in. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. That is, the, again, to state that the fact that you are the one true God. You alone are God. And, and it comes with this idea of works of God. So notice how verse 8 stated that you are unique, O God. Look at your works. Well, then verse 10, you are great and do wondrous things. For you alone are God. It just reverses the order of it. It begins with the works of God and then says you alone are God. And so we have to take note of this in the thought life of David and for us as well as the Holy Spirit has given us this inspired text to direct our prayer life and to direct our contemplative life, this is a contemplation of the nature of God and the works of God that are being expressed in prayer. But before they're going to be expressed in prayer, they need to be residing in our thoughts and in our heart and our mind as we are contemplating the very nature and works of God himself. And so the works of God are contemplated. Isn't it interesting? It is the works of God in creation that the pagan Gentiles had to have acknowledged that Paul appeals to in Acts chapter 17. He appeals to what would be known to them of the creation. And, and, and he says, God has determined where you would live, where you would be. God has created all things, all of these false gods that you worship. Here's the unknown God, the God that you say unknown, I declare to you, is the one true God. And then he appeals to the fact of what they would have known in their very heart, that there was a creator that created all things. What a wonderful truth. I think that we have to then, as we look at this, and not only do we see in this section of worship, not only these, these, the theme of the Messiah that will come, the mission of the church, the mystery of the church, uh, the nature of, of, of God and all of this that, that's present there, we, we also see with that an exhortation on us to contemplate or meditate upon the works of God. How do we do that? Well, we see how God has revealed himself to us. And that is what we are called to contemplate. 
And then this comes, here's the imperative in the worship. As he stands in awe of who God is, notice the imperative. Teach me your way, O Lord. That's in response to the worship. And so as we, as we think of the nature of God, who God is, what God has done, it's connected then, so you could say this, here's my theology of who God is, it's connected now to how I live my life. So, so, so theology then is intricately connected to how we live and respond to that. This is why he says, teach me your way. What is, what is this purpose? Your way, that purpose, I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So in other words, let us study theology as God has revealed himself that we may learn the ways of God and walk in obedience to it. So our theology is not just for the sake of learning abstract ideas about God and asking scholastic questions, but rather we ask those questions for this one purpose, that we may walk in obedience to what we know of God as he has revealed himself to us. That's the purpose. You, you ask this question of yourself. Is this the prayer of our heart? Lord, teach me your way. Teach me your way. And, and what is the fruit of that? What is the fruit of that? Teach me your way. It's actually learning from what God has revealed that directs us. That's the fruit of it, is that it, it manifests itself in our lives. And really, in many ways, this is the test of our own heart. Do I really want to learn the ways of God? Do I really want to? And if I really want to, what does that look like? Well, it must then look like, as David says, that I'll walk in your truth. Again, that corresponding relationship. That's the test of our heart. Do we really want to learn the way? And if so, the purpose of learning the way is so that we will walk in it. And notice the phrase what he says, unite my heart to fear your name. Calvin's commentary is so helpful and insightful on this verse. He says in the word unite, there is a very beautiful metaphor conveying the idea that the heart of man is full of tumult, drawn asunder, and as it were scattered about in fragments. That's what he's, Calvin's saying. He says the heart is, is, is prone to wander. He goes, until God has gathered it to himself and holds it together in a state of steadfast and persevering obedience. And so that prayer, unite my heart to fear your name, is stating a reality of the heart, that it is prone to wander, as Augustus Toplady wrote. 
but God holds it together. And that's what he's asking for. He goes on to say, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Now, you can hang on this for a moment to think about what is anticipated in eternity for us in this verse. It speaks of the eternal nature of God and the desire for all of eternity to glorify your name. And so David anticipates the eternal worship and adoration of God. Someone was speaking to me one time, said, what's heaven going to be like? We're just going to stand around and worship God all day? I mean, we're not going to do anything fun. You think of what David says. He's speaking of glorifying God's name forever as being the highest thing that we could be able to do. And, and I think as we mature in Christ, you can understand someone new to the faith that might think that. But as you mature in Christ, the desire of your heart ought to be, Lord, I'm tired of having my mind distracted when we gather to worship. I'm tired of, of sin, current, past, whatever, afflicting me as I'm trying to worship you. And, and, and as we mature in Christ by God's grace, that desire of eternal adoration is the greatest joy we will ever experience. And that is a grace of God in our hearts as that begins to take place. And he goes on to say, For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Now, this idea of being delivered from the depths of Sheol is because of God's love toward him, that he has, he has been rescued from, from death. Let me, just, let me just take a slight detour here for one moment. The depths of Sheol... And in the Catholic tradition is interpreted as that lower Sheol. If you ever wonder where the doctrine of purgatory comes from, um, it not necessarily comes from that phrase, but that is a phrase often used for it. Um, it's funny, Calvin says it's so ridiculous, it's not even worth re refuting to see that you would get purgatory from that. It's speaking simply of the grave. But what we have to recognize, back on track, is what we have to recognize from this, is whereas David was seeking a, a deliverance from, from death and the grave, we, we need to know that in Christ we are rescued from the depths of Sheol and an eternal wrath of God. Why? Well, look at the first part of the verse. For great is your steadfast love toward me. That is how we avoid the depths of Sheol. And it concludes in verses 14 through 17 with a final set of petitions. But before the petition begins, 
And what is common in the Psalter we see over and over again is the situation is given. And it's in verse 14, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. And speaking that they're merciless, it's speaking of the cruelty of, of, of men, and you might ask the question, was this Saul's attack upon David? Is this what David was referring to here when he speaks of the cruel nature of those that would, would come before him and that they don't know God? But really, verse 14 not only states the situation, but it's there for a contrast. And that contrast comes in verse 15. You notice, but you... So here's what men is like. This is what mankind is like, but you. And so there's a contrast that's developed here by stating the cruelty of men, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. So whereas men is not, man is not merciful, man is not gracious, you are. And why is man not gracious? Because so often man gives because of what they think they'll receive. That's not grace. Man is oftentimes not merciful. And so this is a, a contrast. But notice what he, he, he goes on to say. You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, this is, this is contrast to God. This is that contrast to uh, who the nature of God and how God is to his people. He goes on to say, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. And now I want you to notice that right there. The strongest enemies that we face are weak to the Christian that is resting in the steadfast love of God. The strongest of enemies are weak and powerless to the Christian that is resting in the steadfast love of God. And this is where we see a, the string of imperatives come back to us. Turn to me. Be gracious to me. Give your strength. Save the Son. Show me a sign. These are the string of imperatives. These five imperatives, specific imperatives that are given. And, and rather here than giving a reason for, for asking for God's help, a purpose is given in the effect of answering the prayer. And then this final, as we approach the text, a, a final conjunction looking back on past deliverances provides the expectation for a current deliverance. So again, to turn to me, be gracious to me, that is to show pity to me, give your strength. That is, a, again, a recognition of weakness and God's omnipotence. Save, he says, the son of your maidservant. And that is speaking of a, a long line of servants in the house of God. But I think that we should also, when we see this, the, the save the son of your maidservant. There's a glimpse of the seed of the woman there looking forward to the Messiah. Show me 
your favor. Show me grace. And then here's that purpose. That those who hate me may see and be put to shame. That their eyes may be open and that shame is that public scorn. And throughout the Psalter we've seen many times as, Lord, don't put me to shame, but put my enemies to shame. Just to kind of get an idea, to go back in Psalm 83 and verse 17, to get an idea of that shame, let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. And so as we think about that idea of put them to shame, that is speaking of a judgment upon them. And why? Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. And the basis of that is what you've always done for me, God. You've always rescued me. You've always kept me. You've always fulfilled your promises. So, so Lord, show me grace in this. Show me grace. Again, this, this psalm so neatly divides for our instruction from petition to worship to conclude with petition. And as we look at this prayer, and, and certainly so much more could be said about it, we see that it's thoroughly laced with the attributes of God as were revealed to Moses in Exodus. And how those, those attributes of God's self-revelation uh, are, are in the prayer of the psalmist. That is, the words of the psalmist. So in other words, as the psalmist goes to the Lord in prayer, he's simply praying the words of the Lord. And as we learn from the psalmist and begin to incorporate the psalms in our own prayer life, what we're simply doing is praying God's infallible word and self-revelation back to him. And so if we think, well, that's really not original, I'm reminded of the fact there was only one original theologian in Geneva. That was Michael Servetus and was burned at the stake. We don't want to be original theologians. Let us pray the words of God back to him. These are the words he desires from us. And the psalmist teaches us this and directs our prayer, tells us how to pray. We see the strength of our Lord is most realized when we recognize our own need and weakness before God. And David, a king, and a strong king, the, the greatest earthly king the world's ever known, is but a weak man. And he recognizes that before God. We see persistence in prayer is our demonstration of trusting God do you trust in God, and how will that manifest in our lives? And then finally, David envisions the Messiah at, at several points in this, in this psalm, which would have been pointing the, the initial worshipers and hearers to, to anticipate answer in the Messiah and, and pointing us today that in Christ we are saved from the depths of Sheol, in Christ. But we also see in this idea of being sept, uh, saved from the depths of Sheol in anticipation of the resurrection. 
that points us forward to that blessed day. You think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. It's an anticipation of our own resurrection. And so let us rest in the completed work of Christ and join the mission of sharing the gospel that all nations come and will adore our Heavenly Father. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the completed work of Christ and that in it we can stand complete in your sight. That in Christ and in Christ alone we are declared righteous because of his righteousness. Father, we think of the words of the apostles that said to Jesus, teach us to pray. And we are so grateful for that recording of Jesus' instruction. And we are so grateful for the Psalms that you have given us by inspiration of your Holy Spirit to be written down for our instruction, our edification, to guide and direct us in our prayer life. There's so much to contemplate here for you are eternal, you are infinite, but yet you have condescended and given us a description of your, yourself in ways that we can understand. And even that is still incomprehensible to our finite minds. And so, Father, by your grace, give us hearts that desire to meditate upon the wonders of who you are. We thank you for this day that we could gather to worship you. What a privilege it is to come to church What a joy it is to be able to reside with the saints. Father, may our heart's desire be to always gather with the saints to worship and adore you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.